We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. This series of programs is all about how war has improved all of our lives. And this program's about how modern heart surgery happened thanks to war and because of one man's struggle to overcome what up to and during World War II was an area of surgery that no right-thinking surgeon would do, heart surgery. The heart's an incredible pumping machine. It's the size of a grapefruit. It beats slightly more than once a second, 100,000 times a day. Depending on how long you live, it can beat up to 3.5 billion times in a lifetime. Your heart pumps out blood with enormous force. If your aorta is severed, your heart will send a fountain of blood three metres up into the air. It was only during World War II and because of one remarkable man that surgeons began to perform surgery on the heart. Until then, it had been a no-go area. After the war, heart surgery was revolutionised. This is an amazing story. I am just amazed at what the heart does. Every hour it pumps an average of 260 litres of blood, 6,240 litres of blood a day, which is probably more litres of blood pushed through your body by your heart each and every day than the amount of petrol that you put in your car every year. During an average lifetime, your heart will do the equivalent work to lifting a one-ton object 240 kilometres straight up into the air. It takes your blood about 50 seconds to go through your body. It was only during World War II that heart disease was recognised as being a major health epidemic that was stalking our society, at least in the West, with our lifestyle and diet. The wake-up call was pretty dramatic and came from the top. Shortly before President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's death, his blood pressure was all over the place. It ranged from 170 over 88 to 240 over 130. It hit the most remarkable reading of 300 over 190 just before he died. When Roosevelt died soon after... At the age of just 63, the world seemed to then have come to the realisation that heart disease had become a serious and widespread problem that had to be addressed. That Roosevelt was the first of the big three leaders of World War II to die perhaps brought home the seriousness of heart disease. Stalin was 67 at that time and Churchill was the oldest at 71, overweight, heavy drinker. He did everything that 
you would expect would kill you. But Roosevelt went out first. The 20th century is known as the century of the heart because no other area of medicine made such remarkable progress as did heart surgery during and after World War II. And there was one man, one remarkable surgeon, who was way out the front and possibly the reason for this breakthrough, an American surgeon by the name of Dwight E. Harkin. Dwight was born on 5 June 1910 at Osceola, Iowa. In 1934, at the tender age of 24, he married his childhood sweetheart, Anne Hood. They had two children. They remained married until death did them part, as the traditional wedding vow goes. In 1936, Dwight earned his medical qualifications as an MD from Harvard University and worked as an intern at Bellevue Hospital. At the height of the Great Depression, Dwight, as an intern, was earning just $15 a month. His father refused to help his newly married son unless he returned to Osceola. Dwight's dad was a local GP, and I guess he was hoping that his son would join him in his practice. But luckily, Dwight's wife was working as an employment manager at Stern's department store. That let them make ends meet, at least just, until Dwight won a scholarship to study in London. There he worked under one of the leading English surgeons, A. Tudor Edwards, Dwight's interest in the heart now started to shine through. The human heart wasn't an organ that any other surgeons were interested in touching. In those days, opening up the human heart started a tight time frame, at the end of which the patient always died. There had been no exceptions. When America entered the Second World War, Dwight joined the U.S. Army Medical Corps in Europe. He was given the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He joined the Massachusetts General Hospital Medical Unit, which was headquartered in London. When the D-Day invasion at Normandy happened, many US soldiers were being returned to England with wombs where they had shrapnel or unexploded bullets inside their still-beating hearts, and no one would operate on them. There were men who were simply waiting to die. That was the only fate that awaited them. But thanks to war and wartime conditions, Dwight had opportunities to take surgical risks that he would never have been allowed to explore in peacetime. One of the great advantages he had to try out what were dangerous, risky surgical procedures was that the patient's with metal lodged in their hearts, were young men who were in peak physical condition because of the rigorous training they'd had to undertake to go into combat. If the patients had been much older, less fit people, what he was about to do would have been unthinkable. Dwight had to cut into the wall of the living human heart, insert his finger or a medical instrument into the heart cavity and feel around blind to locate the shrapnel and remove it. In his first attempt on 14 patients, all 14 died. His next group of 14 saw half of the patients survive. His 
third group of 14 saw only two of them die. He was obviously getting the hang of this. With his fourth group of 14, all of them survived. Did I tell you that all of these operations had been performed on animals? I probably should have. Well, they were. Now, Dwight felt ready to try the operation on US soldiers who had shrapnel in their hearts. This was a serious risk. At the end of the first day's operations, he could have had 14 GIs dead. The night before he performed his first operation on wounded US soldiers, he wrote to his wife, If I succeed, we will have developed the future of cardiac surgery. If I fail, my career and our lives are over. Well, now the next day had arrived and Dwight was going to perform his operation on 14 living US soldiers who had pieces of shrapnel lodged in their hearts. Every one of the men survived. No one had ever dared to operate on the heart before. Dwight had done it 14 times in one day and had a perfect score. During the war, Dwight performed 130 of these open-heart operations on wounded soldiers. Every one of his patients survived. That is an incredibly good result, especially for a type of operation that no one had ever done before. In those days, performing one of these open-heart operations was a race against time. There were only a couple of minutes before the patient would die from bleeding out unless their heart was stitched up again in time and then enough blood put back quickly into their bodies to stop shock setting in and killing them. One of these early operations was actually videoed. The patient being filmed had a bullet fragment in his heart. The blood is seen gushing out of him once his heart is opened. You can see that Dwight couldn't see what he was doing. There was just too much blood. He took a clamp and blind just felt around inside this guy's heart until he managed to grab the bullet. The first time he pulled it out and it got stuck on the outside of the heart and the bullet fell back inside again. It took three more tries before he succeeded in getting a hold of it and getting it out. Once the operation had been completed and the patient's heart was sewn back up, the problem was to stop losing him. These patients had just lost so much blood being pumped out by that powerful, tireless organ, the heart. A conventional drip blood transfusion wouldn't work to give the patient back quickly the necessary volume of blood that he needed to live after the operation. Without doing something out of the ordinary with the blood transfusion, the patient would go into shock and die. So Dwight had had rigged up a rubber bulb on top of the glass bottles that were used to hold the blood for transfusion in those days. The blood had to be forcefully pumped into the patient whose heart had now been restitched. Sometimes the nurse pumped a little too forcefully. Or perhaps there was a fault with the bottle. Whatever the reason, some of the bottles exploded. Then everything in the surgery was covered with blood. Once the patient had recovered, Dwight had to give these men their lives back. The confidence to live the lives that had been restored to them 
Before the operation, the men had struggled to breathe before their lungs filled up with fluid. They really couldn't get out of bed. Dwight took the recovered patient and walked with them to the stairs in the hospital. He then told them to walk to the top of those stairs. This was a biblical experience, a lot like when Jesus had told people who had been lame from birth to get up and walk. The men always begged him that that was just impossible. They couldn't do it. He'd tell them to go ahead anyway. Do it. Unbelieving, they started slowly up the stairs. Every single one of these men cried when they got to the top. They'd been given their life back by this innovative, ground-breaking surgery. Modern cardiac surgery had begun. Doctors would now become ever more courageous in what they would try and what they could do. It was the medical equivalent of the Wright brothers taking their plane into the air for the first time on 17 December 1903, the first time ever that man had left the binding pull of gravity keeping him down, to the landing on the moon that took place just 60 years later on the 20th of July 1963. And this was what was now happening with cardiac surgery, this giant leap forward. And at the forefront was Dwight. He had a lot more to give the world. He was only just beginning. So now I'll tell you what happened next. Dwight, after the war, returned to continuing practicing medicine in the United States. And there he pioneered many techniques and procedures to help patients suffering with heart disease. He established the first post-operative intensive care unit for cardiac surgery patients. And that idea caught on and was copied for patients suffering from other medical conditions. In 1960, he performed the first heart valve replacement. He implanted the first demand cardiac pacemaker. He developed the defibrillator. He did work that led to the first intra-aortic balloon pump. And what an amazing story the background on the balloon pump is. I'll tell you about that in a second. He also took on the role of teaching doctors about cardiac surgery, a role that he, of course, excelled at. Dwight hasn't been the only person to make enormous contributions in the area of the heart. And a moment ago, I talked about the aortic balloon pump and that there was an interesting backstory to that. What some of our medical people do to break new ground is just frankly stunning and this is an amazing story. The man I'm going to talk about is a man called Werner Forsmann. He was a German, a young newly qualified doctor working in a hospital near Berlin in 1929. He wondered if it would be possible to gain direct access to the heart using a catheter. Why wonder when you can easily find out? So he inserted a catheter into an artery in his arm and he slowly pushed it up towards his shoulder and on into his chest until it reached his heart. It would be no exaggeration, I guess, to say that he was pleasantly surprised to find that he didn't drop dead when a foreign body entered his heart. And having successfully done this... He wanted to be able to prove to the world what he'd done and what he'd discovered. 
And so, with the catheter still inserted all the way up into his heart, he walked upstairs to the hospital's radiology department on another floor of the building. And he got them to do an X-ray, which showed the shadowy image of the catheter in his heart. This procedure has gone on to revolutionise heart surgery today. That would have happened sooner, though, but for the fact that Werner published the details of his incredible experiment on himself and the results in an obscure professional journal. So basically, no one in the world knew what he'd done or what he'd accomplished. When Adolf Hitler came to power, Werner became a keen supporter of the National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party. He joined the National Socialist German Physicians League, which actively purified the medical profession of the vile Jew. He had them all expelled. It's not quite known whether he did anything beyond that, but that wasn't very nice of him, was it? That background would have been wonderful if Germany had won the war, though, but it didn't, and now it was a definite liability. So after the war, Werner deliberately assumed a low profile. But then... Two academics from Columbia University in the United States, relying on Werner's groundbreaking work and miraculously having somehow found his published article, tracked him down and they publicised what he'd done. The result of all this was that in 1956, Werner and these two academics, Dickinson Richards and André Cournon, all won the Nobel Prize in Physiology. But let me tell you an interesting conundrum that medical science has reached. Take cancer, for instance. If tomorrow we were able to cure all cancer, only about 3.2 years would be added to our average life expectancy. If we eliminated all heart disease that would add only five and a half years to our life expectancy. The reason for these disappointing outcomes is that the people who die from these health issues tend to be old already. If their heart condition or their cancer didn't kill them, something else would. Here's another hot topic for today. Biologist Leonard Hayflick says that if we eradicated Alzheimer's disease we'd add just a miserable 19 days to our average life expectancy. So today, for every extra year of life that science and medicine have given us, only 10 months of that year's extension is healthy. Nearly half of people aged 50 or more suffer from some chronic pain or disability. We're much better at extending life today, but not giving a good quality of life. Older people are massively expensive to the health bill. They make up 10% of the population, but fill half of the hospital beds and consume one-third of all of the medicines. The movie Soylent Green, an old movie, but a wonderful science fiction movie had a solution and that was to make all of the old people into biscuits. Not really a great way to go and euthanasia sort of is pushing us down that same path. The Nazis used it and uh, 
I don't think you could rate it as being a great success for them. All of the people who worked on the euthanasia program, which was before World War II, went on to have stunningly successful careers running the extermination camps like Auschwitz and Treblinka. If euthanasia is the answer, then the question was stupid. Thanks to the pioneering work of Dwight, the world went from surgeons who refused to touch the heart to performing the most complicated operations and procedures on the heart as a matter of routine today and with exceptional survival rates and quick recovery rates. There's always an issue about what we can do and what we should do. Wisdom, as always, is something that we are in very short supply of. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you will definitely like my other program, CYKIAE.